I will work day in and day out to wake up and smell the coffee. We want to return to the European Union. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Philip Norton. Lord Norton, a professor of government at the University of Hull, a member of the House of Lords and author of the recently published The 1922 Committee, Power Behind the Scenes. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's wonderful um, to have you on. Now, the first question uh, that I'd like to ask is, what made you want to write this book in the first place? Well, there are a number of reasons. I mean, my whole academic career has been spent studying uh, Parliament, different aspects of Parliament, not least um, behaviour within Parliament, particularly voting behaviour, but also looking at how MPs are actually organised, not least through the parties. So I've, I was actually writing about party organisation um, back um, in the 1970s and researching through uh, the uh, analysing um, what MPs were doing on the official record, but also through interviews with MPs, looking at different archives, uh, and really maintained that interest since. But then it's been um, added to um, by two developments, really. One um, is the fact that once I became a member of the House of Lords, sitting on the Conservative benches in the Lords, I was uh, entitled to attend meetings of the 1922 committee, So, I, and I have done, so I'm a regular and have been now for 25 years, so I'm able to look at it from the point of view of a participant observer, if you like, from the inside. And the other motivation was uh, 10 years ago, just over 10 years ago, I was approached by the chairman of the 1922 committee, Sir Graham Brady, um, and invited to pen a sort of short booklet on the 90th anniversary, because nobody had much written about it, and that's a, a key point. So I did actually pen a uh, um, short booklet for that, um, looking at the first 90 years of the 1922 committee, and that was based on um, archival research going through the minutes of the 1922 committee since its foundation, uh, as well as the executive committee, and uh, complementing it with um, research of other memoirs of parliamentarians, interviews as well, as well as my own experience. And that really got me interested in doing the centenary history of the 1922 committee, because I realised that it's a very, it's well known to be a fairly powerful or significant political body, but essentially it's one that's hidden in plain sight. People know about it, but don't really understand it. And there's been very little scholarly analysis. So my book is only the second book to be published about the 1922 committee during its first hundred years. And the first book was published in 1973 to mark its 50th anniversary history. Um, so an awful lot has happened since. So that's really what the book is about. And that was where it, uh, if you like, that's where it uh, comes from in terms of my particular interest or rather confluence of interests. Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely. And, and one thing before we turn to the 1922 committee specifically, one thing that, that struck me in the opening of the book is that you mentioned Stephen Luke's three theories of power, pluralist, elitist, and institutional forms of power. Do you think you could just explain what those different types of power mean and, and how they're related to the, the 1922 committee? Certainly. Um, 
each is relevant, but it, it, there are different views of power. One is the pluralist view, and this is the one most normally utilised by scholars and indeed by people just looking at uh, decision-making processes, because that's concerned with the resolution of disputes once they're on the political agenda. So there are arguments over policy, who wins? So who wins is exercising power. But I say that's once an issue comes to the fore, it's on the agenda. How is it resolved? The elitist view is more concerned with how issues get onto the agenda in the first place. So people keeping them off the agenda. And in terms of the 22 committee, the relevance here is, if you like, is anticipated reaction. So once an issue's on the agenda, the 1922 committee might be an important player in blocking something. But it can be quite important in terms of anticipated reaction. That is that ministers, for example, might anticipate this is not going to go down well with the 1922. We won't bring it forward in the first place. So it's what's kept off the agenda, so if you like, non-decision making. So it's important to think about, well, what's not there as well as what has come onto the agenda. But the third view is very different, the institutional view, because that's concerned with the structures, the processes through which issues are resolved. So it's not concerned so much with um, who wins, but the mechanism by which it is resolved, because uh, structures, the rules and processes that exist within them are not neutral in their effect. So if you think about things like the rules for electing a party leader, had Labour had the same rules for electing a party leader as the Conservative Party had, it's fairly safe, I think, to claim. Um, one can't definitively prove it, but it, I, I thought it fairly straightforward to claim Jeremy Corbyn would never have become leader of the Labour Party. Had he done, and Labour had the same rules for getting rid of a leader as a Conservatives, then he would have gone rid of, because Labour MPs voted no confidence in him. But that was indicative vote only. It had no force. On the Conservative side, the rules provide for a no-confidence vote, so if MPs vote to remove a leader, the leader is gone. So rules matter. So that's why the 22 is so important. The institutional framework, especially now, given since 1965, the Conservative leader has been uh, elected by Conservative MPs. Now, they have a, the party membership have a say in it as well, but the MPs are key players. The rules matter in terms of choosing a leader and in terms of getting rid of a leader. Absolutely. And I think it's important, as, as you mentioned at the, the start of the book, to explain the origins of the of the 1922 committee. Could you could you give an outline as to how the committee came to be and what specific circumstances mm. led to it being seen to be a, a necessary body? Absolutely, because the... Um, 1922 committee, I say little is known about it, and it's sort of sh shrouded in myths. Because um, you'll find a number of textbooks and other commentators saying the 1922 committee came into being in 1922, uh, also claiming it was a result of the gathering of Conservative MPs in October 1922 that voted for the Conservative Party to fight the next election as an independent party, independent of the Liberals. So the effect, and that was against the advice of party leaders, the effect of which was to um, bring the Lloyd George coalition to an end and trigger a general election. Um, I mean, there's a third myth that the 1922 committee used to produce the, the men in grey suits who went to tell a Conservative leader that their time was up. That was before you know, election was introduced. Um, all three are myths. The 1922 committee wasn't founded in 1922. It's got nothing to do with the meeting of Conservative MPs at the Carlton Club in October 1922. 
And um, there was never a visitation by men in grey suits telling a leader it was time uh, to go. They went because they, you know, because of age or because they got fed up with all the perhaps inviting criticism um, or because of a visit by the equivalent of men in white coats, that is, their doctors. Um, so on the first point, the 1922 committee came into being in, in 1923. Um, uh, it was formed in April 1923. And the reason for that, the reason for the name is not because it was founded in 1922, but because it was founded by the class of 1922. That is, MPs first elected at the general election of November 1922. So that election brought in a large number of uh, newly elected Conservative members, uh, 111 of them. Um, and in those days, it's only changed relatively recently, um, MPs arrived newly elected, Palace of Westminster, and left to find their own way round to make sense of what was going on. There wasn't indeed any induction, no formal mechanism for introducing uh, them, showing them around explaining how they made use of the facilities and had an impact um, so some of them one in particular Gervais Rentoul who was uh, the new MP for Lowestoft uh, were a bit bewildered and thought well perhaps we should do something about that so Rentoul invited some other newly elected members to get together and form a body designed to help them to understand what was going on and to play a more active part in parliamentary life so it came into being essentially as if you like a self-help group for new MPs um, had no coercive um, capacity. In terms of the pluralist sphere of power, you can distinguish between persuasion and coercion. So persuasion, you have to persuade somebody because they've got freedom of choice to choose between the options. Coercion means you can tell somebody to do something and they feel they have no option but to comply. Well, when it was formed, they could try and persuade, but that was the most of it. Um, so it came into being as a self-help group to help new MPs make sense of what was going on. And they decided to uh, meet weekly um, to inform themselves about business, about procedure. They started inviting speakers to address them. So the first one they invited, uh, Sir Frederick Banbury, who's a long-serving backbencher, came to speak to them about parliamentary procedure. So it really took off from that, weekly meetings, hearing from speakers, um, getting the cooperation of the whip, so whip would come along each week and explain what the business, the forthcoming business was. It's also a way for the whip to hear views expressed in the meeting. So it really took off from that. It was the class of twenty-two sort of cut off members of the class of twenty coming together uh, to form, as I say, this group to help them play a more active part in parliamentary life. Now, of course, had it been confined to newly elected members of the 1922 from 1922 in the fullness of time it would die it would have died out um in the next parliament uh 923 um they invited mps newly elected at that election to join them and then a year or so later opened it up to all conservative private members so that's how it became the um body for all conservative backbench uh mps or conservative private members and slight difference um, and so that's how it came into being. So if you like, it was formed bottom-up. Indeed. And one of the things that I find um, fascinating from the book is that by the time we come to 1925, um, you, you've um, mentioned one instance in which Stanley Baldwin has to 
uh, intervene directly with the members of the of the 1922 over a, a private member's bill on trade union reform. What was it that drove that initial popularity of the 1922, and how did it then seem to to seep away, um, as as you mentioned in in the 1930s? Yes, it it well it became quite attractive because it was if you like a neutral body. In other words, it wasn't a ginger group. It wasn't advocating a particular cause. It was an arena in which members could come together to discuss things within a party context. So that was quite um, useful. Um, and it was valuable for members to come along as uh, for partly for being socialised, if you like, into the, into the House of Commons, if you like, the whole purpose of it but also to meet other members, to hear their concerns, to hear from speakers. So it was quite a useful gathering um, and um, through quite reasonable attendances. But it was limited. Um, so the high point really in the first couple of decades, so 1920s, uh, proving quite popular, heard from quite a number of important speakers, not just ministers, but outside speakers. Uh, including Sir John Reith, who was the director general of the BBC. He actually came and spoke twice. But in the 1930s, it sort of um, didn't flourish. It was on a downward path for really um, well, a number of reasons. One was it wasn't really uh, an active participant in the great issues of the day, um, the big figures who were disputing issues over, you know, uh, rearmament, um, India, um, tariff reform. They weren't using the 1922 committee as a platform for pushing their particular case. They were using the public platform. The 22 was somewhat overshadowed as well by party backbench committees, which were official um, committees set up by the party leadership in 24, which absorbed the interests of members in particular areas. So if there you know, the dispute over India, then members... You know, crowded into meetings of the India Committee. The Foreign Affairs Committee was very uh, well attended, quite often quite influential. Um, so that sort of overshadowed the 22. And to some extent, the 22 tried to piggyback on the popularity of these committees by organising joint meetings on particular issues. And it was also undermined by a report it issued. Uh, um, um, once you add the economic crisis... Um, 22 committees decided to set up um, committees to look at, or a committee, the economy committee, to look at proposals for um, saving money. It operated through subcommittees, operating in fairly isolated ways, um, came up with recommendations that were quite radical in their extent. And um, Rentoul decided to publish uh, the report without taking it first to the 22 committee for approval because he claimed it wouldn't be able to maintain secrecy so they might as well go publish it straight away um but that proved controversial um not least because so many of the proposals were radical would have affected adversely a number of constituencies so members of the 22 well some members didn't uh, like it they objected um the report itself had no great impact itself particularly well i mean like most copies were unsold um and it led to Gervais Rental being voted out of the chairmanship uh, of the 22. And his successor, his successors weren't particularly proactive in leading the commission and really trying to raise its 
profile. So towards the end of the 1930s, it was sort of on a downward uh, 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 move um, and possibly might have died off had it not been saved by the advent of a national government in 1940. So in terms of the critical junctures that have determined the 1922 committee's sort of fortunes, because in good conservative fashion it's evolved, um, you've got the formation, so Gervais Rentoul initiating its formation, you've got the national formation of a national government in 1940, and then the introduction in 1965 of rules for electing the party leader by the party's MPs. So what saved it was the formation of a national government in 1940, and that really helped transform its fortunes. Could you explain how uh, that national government mm. saved it and, and, and the influence it, it then had on, on, yes. on that government? Oh, absolutely, because, I mean, the 22 wasn't particularly involved in the formation of a national government. It's peripheral to it. But once it was formed, it created tremendous opportunities, um, really, for two reasons. One is it's a national government, um, so adversarial politics, certainly on the public platform, ceased. Um, the party organisations largely were reduced or went into hibernation, but the 1922 committee carried on. So it was the authentic voice of Conservative MPs. It was the forum through which Conservative MPs could express a view as Conservative MPs. It was on the public platform in the chamber. They were sort of supporters of the uh, national government. So where a distinctive Conservative voice was needed, um, they uh, provided it. And the other main fact was the, the that the MPs had to be united publicly in the chamber, as uh, Stephen King Hall put it at the time. Um, all MPs had to be supporters of the government, but by the same token, they were potential critics of the government. So the government needed to keep MPs on side publicly. So they needed to be able to deal with any dissent as soon as possible. And of course, the 22 provided a forum through which any disquiet, not least about the conduct of the war, could be voiced and ministers could respond to it and try to nip it in the bud um, before it uh, came onto the floor of the house. So it became very influential. Um, Churchill took it very seriously. Ministers, including Labour ministers, uh, came to speak to it. Um, and it also benefited from a, a, a newly elected chairman in 1940 uh, who proved very energetic, um, Alec Erskine Hill, in um, promoting it with ministers, uh, having meetings with Churchill, organising dinners so that uh, members could come and meet ministers and so particularly members who were somewhat critical of what was going on so ministers come and meet them and address their concerns. So very much a busy bee at this time, uh, slightly self-important, but um, really pushing the 22 forward and making a significant political force um, and it affected, had an impact on various measures, seeing off uh, attempt at coal rationing, um, um, that was what died a death. Some other bills were massively amended because of pressure from the 22. So it was really, and to some extent, the government itself was um, underwent changes in its formation uh, because of a disquiet on the backbenchers. So the 22 really came into its own then. And, that, and it also provided an arena for discussing um, Britain after the end of the war. So looking ahead... Because Churchill wasn't that interested, he was there. He was interested in fighting the war, winning the war. That was his basically his core interest. 
wasn't too um, given to thinking about post-war development, not that interested in social policy. So when the Beveridge Report was published, it was the 22 that proved important because the day after it was published, Be Beveridge spoke at a 22 committee and apparently went down extraordinarily well. Um, so there are other meetings where the 22 could actually think ahead uh, and consider policy for yeah, the post-war Britain. So it really came into its own and then it carried on after the end of the Second World War because uh, Churchill was leader and largely an absentee leader in uh, opposition, not too interested in um, domestic policy. So he didn't so much lead as preside. So it almost created a vacuum that the 22 could exploit um, to influence uh, policy. And we see that once the government, Conservative government was returned in 1951. So, for example, it was the 22 initiative within it from certain members of the 22 pushing, for example, for the BBC to lose its broadcasting monopoly. The government was in favour of maintaining its monopoly, couldn't see any public calls for change. So Lord Salisbury appeared before the 22 to justify it, but the pressure from the 22 was such that the government gave in, accepted that there should be a change, and so that broadcasting monopoly went. And at the same time, you start to see not only change in policy because of pressure from the 22, but a ministerial resignation because of pressure from the 22. Uh, Thomas Dugdale, who was Minister of Agriculture, was over Critchell Down. Um, there was an element of maladministration, but it key was the policy because um, Dugdale agreed with his officials in terms of the policy. Well, Conservative MPs didn't agree with the policy and made that clear. Uh, and then uh, Dugdale attended a meeting of the 22. Um, um, and it was clear from that meeting it lost the confidence of 22. So when it was debated in how shortly thereafter, um, Dugdale at the dispatch box announced not only a change in policy, but that he was resigning. And Herbert Morrison from the opposition front bench you know, publicly said, yes, the 1922 committee has got a scalp. So thereafter, we've seen various ministers go uh, because they've lost the confidence of the 1922 committee. I mean, there were very high-profile cases uh, under the premierships of Margaret Thatcher and John Major. So really, that was the you know, 1940 onwards. It became a significant political player and a permanent uh, body within the ranks of the Conservative Party. Indeed, and I'd like to focus now on, and you mentioned it, you've touched on it um, earlier, the change in regards to leadership elections in the Conservative yeah. Party in 1965. How was the 1922 involved in that? And what was the significance of that change? Well, the, the, the 65 change was very significant. There have been others since in 1975 and 1998. Um, 1998, one proving particularly problematic. Um, but in 1965, Alec Douglas Hume had been chosen, who had emerged as leader in 1963, um, in a way that had proved highly controversial. Macmillan's emergence in 57 had been controversial and Douglas Hume's even more so in, in, in 63, how that had come about. It's interesting, behind the scenes, the chairman of the 1922 committee at the time, John Morrison, was actually quite a key player, but that wasn't apparent, you know, publicly. But Alec Douglas Hume emerged, he was aware of the controversy and felt, and uh, it really can't continue in this way. So he initiated... Um, um, revising the rules for, well, 
deciding how the rule how the lead should be elected. And so rules were devised for the party leader to be elected by Conservative MPs and the chairman of the 922 committee was to be the returning officer. So effectively, the 22 committee became the body that chose the leader. And in the first uh, election, because then Alec Luxum stood down, Edward Heath triumphed in that first ballot over Reginald Maudling and Enoch Powell. So the MPs chose the leader, but they didn't have a capacity formally to remove the leader. That came about in 1975. There was widespread dissatisfaction within the parliamentary party with Heath's leadership. They wanted to get move him out, basically, but there was no mechanism for doing it. So they put up pressure on. Heath acceded to their request to revise the rules and provide for the opportunity for uh, the elect re-election, or if you like, the annual election of the leader. That was what was introduced. Um, and as soon as that was agreed, um, there was a challenge to his leadership. Margaret Thatcher stood against him, and as we know, she uh, emerged triumphant. So since then, it's been possible, or was possible thereafter, to challenge the leader each year by um, another candidate being nominated. And, of course, we had a sort of the so-called stalking horse challenge to Margaret Thatcher with Sir Anthony Mayer the following year. A very serious challenge. Michael Heseltine being nominated to challenge her. Um, Margaret Thatcher not getting the requisite number of votes in the first ballot as the rules stood and then deciding to stand down, as we know, John Major being elected. Then that, then in 1998, another change um, to involve the party membership in the election process. Um, so now MPs narrow it down to two candidates, so eliminating ballots until there are two final candidates. Those names are placed before the party leadership to choose the leader. So the membership chooses, but the party, the parliamentary party, the 1922 committee, retains the power exclusively to remove the leader. So a leader can be subject to a vote of no confidence if 15% of the membership of the parliamentary party write to the chairman of the 1922 committee calling for such a vote. And as we've seen, uh, that has variously occurred uh, on, uh, on occasion, resulting in the leader going either immediately because they've lost the vote or because they're so seriously wounded by it that, uh, you know, at some point they're going to have to go in the not-too-distant future, um, given whatever pressures are operating. So the 1922 committee remains very, um, well, core to who's going to be leader, but particularly in terms of who's not going to be uh, or going to cease to be leader. But the 1998 rules are problematic because, in essence, what they've created is an invitation to struggle between the party membership uh, and the 1922 committee. Indeed, and I'd just like to touch upon um, Margaret Thatcher's relationship with the mm. 1922 committee because it's a very interesting one, um, as you detail in the book, and it's a, a, certainly a um, a relationship that has its ups and downs and um, it evolves over time in the way that yep. the, the, the 1922 considered Margaret Thatcher as leader. Could you explain what those kind of ups and downs were and, and, and how the relationship yep. evolved. Indeed, well, with Margaret Thatcher, so it was, uh, well, not so much ups and downs, but up and down, uh, whereas when Heath was leader, it was essentially down all the way. Um, 
certainly up when she came in, she had a good relationship with members of the 22 committee in a way that Heath had not. Uh, she was very good at mixing with members. She saw the executive regularly. Um, she invited them to number 10, which was a success when Heath had invited the executive to a dinner at 20, number 10, a complete disaster. So she was very well regarded in the first part of her premiership. Um, good relations, um, helped by the fact that chairman of the 922 committee was Edward Ducan, who sort of assiduously kept her informed, um, telling her what topics they'd like to discuss at the, the executive or, and so on. And also by Ian Gow, her parliamentary private secretary, keeping her informed of what was going on within the 1922. Now, that changed sort of in the middle of her premiership. Um, in a way, she became more... Prime Minister than party leader and started to become a bit detached from the party. There's also a change in the chairmanship of the um, 22, uh, the new chairman, Cranley Onslow, didn't quite have the touch of Edward Ducan. Um, and she was served by a number of parliamentary private secretaries, some of whom um, weren't that good at liaising um, with the uh, 22, and they came in for some criticism. And she became somewhat more detached. She started to see meeting, uh, meetings with the executive as an inconvenience of getting in the way. One member of the executive that I spoke to noticed that you know, uh, um, she started tapping her feet um, during the meetings. So um became a bit tense, particularly then with some of the policies being pursued, particularly towards the end of the premiership, not least over the community charge or poll tax, uh, which was very uh, controversial. Um, and Margaret Thatcher was sticking in it, yeah, heels in on it, um, and and so that exacerbated the the, the tensions um, with the 1922 committee. And one thing that I, I I think is 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 fascinating as well is the change in the um, relationship that happens post uh, Thatcher and, and, and Major, which you you describe mm. um, with the the phrase the maker and slayer of leaders. That obviously, particularly uh, relevant to the most recent leaders of the yes. Conservative Party. How much do you think the realization of the powers of the 1922 committee has has perhaps changed the attitude that leaders have towards it and the way that it's perceived in in, in the press as well? Because it's certainly something that I think in the last few years more people are certainly aware of in, in, in terms of the general public than perhaps they might have been in, say, the uh, 1980s or 1990s. Oh, indeed, because um, to become leader now, you've got to have certain skills to obviously get on to the final two to go before the membership, but then you've got to have an appeal to the membership, um, which may be different to that which you then need to keep your MPs on side. And there is a problem, an inherent problem, in the, the way the system works, because it has the potential for a party leader to be chosen by the party membership, even though that leader only had a minority of support among MPs in the final ballot among MPs. Because if there's more than three, then it's narrowed down by succeeding ballots. There's a final ballot. There are three candidates. The top two then go before the a party membership. Now, you might come second in that final ballot with a small minority of the votes because the you know, one candidate's got the overwhelming support of Conservative MPs, but it's that second candidate who comes second who might be elected by the party membership. That happened the first time you had an election under the new rules. 
um, Ian Duncan Smith in the ballot of MPs. I think the final ballot, the result was um, Ken Clark got something like 56 votes, Ian Duncan Smith got 51, and Michael Portillo 50. So Duncan Smith just edged out Portillo, but he only had about the support of a third of Conservative MPs, yet he was elected by the party membership. So he led a parliamentary party where he didn't have overwhelming support in the first place, so he's vulnerable. You saw a similar thing with Liz Truss in the final ballot. She got 31% of the votes of Conservative MPs. And you may remember when Theresa May became leader, um, the two candidates put before the party membership were going to be Theresa May and Andrea Leadsom. But Andrea Leadsom withdrew from the contest. Now, ostensibly, it was a result of a, an interview she gave to the Times, uh, made some injudicious comments about um, Theresa May being childless. But she was already contemplating withdrawing because she realised she didn't have the support of Conservative MPs. Theresa May, in that final ballot, had got the support of an absolute majority of Conservative MPs. So Andrea Leadsom had this view, I'm elected leader by the party membership. You know, I'm going to try and lead a party, a parliamentary party, that doesn't have confidence in me anyway. Uh, I mean, I might be you know, leader for a short time. So that's the problem. Sometimes they get, you know, a small minority of the MPs vote, but just sufficient to come second to ease out the third party candidate. So I say in Ian Duncan Smith case, just easing out Michael Portillo. In Liz Truss's case, uh, just le uh, easing out Annie Mordaunt. Um, so you've got that invitation to struggle, I think, is inherent. Um, mind you, even if you get a majority support of MPs in that final ballot, doesn't guarantee you'll be carry on as leader for a long time because both Theresa May and Boris Johnson got absolute majority, so it's no guarantee. But you could argue you're in a weak position if you start off you know, becoming leader, but knowing only a minority of your MPs uh, actually voted for you. And, and and one leader in particular that I think um, the relationship with the 1922 seems quite interesting that, that you point out in the book is David Cameron's relationship mm. with it. Could you just explain what that relationship was and how perhaps his, his attitude towards it fitted into his approach to the Conservative Party and approach to his attempt to, 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 to modernise it, as it were, yes. to use a turn of phrase? Indeed. Um, well, it's problematic. I think not so much because of attempt to modernised, but the stance he took towards it, and then, of course, the circumstances of a coalition um, government. Um, as leader, when he became leader, he had a reputation for being somewhat critical of the 22 committee, being a bit wary of it, and wanted to sort of limit it. Um, and when he became prime minister, he summoned a meeting of all Conservative MPs to get them to, or ask them to pass a motion saying that ministers should also be members of the 1922 committee. Now, a majority did vote for the motion, but um, a meeting of all Conservative MPs is not in a position to change the rules of the 1922 committee. Only the 1922 committee could do that. That was made clear to uh, David Cameron, uh, and there was a threat of legal action if he persisted. And so he conceded, um, and so his attempts to... to expand its membership so ministers were voting members, which was seen as a way of trying to influence it in terms of the election of the uh, new chairman of the 22 committee, um, didn't come to fruition. Um, 
So that sort of soured relationships, he was seen as somewhat distant, as uh, one MP put it, lots of contact but not much listening. Um, and then, of course, the formation of the coalition itself brought us back to a similar situation, you know, in wartime, um, you know, where the parties in government, but not alone in government. So you needed an authentic conservative voice, uh, which the 1922 committee provided. And on some issues, you know, pressured or put pressure on the prime minister to act in a certain way, where his inclination was to you know, take a slightly different line to keep the Liberal Democrats on board. I mean, that was very apparent with the referendum on introducing the alternative vote for parliamentary elections. David Cameron had wanted to not play an active, too much of an active role in that, didn't want to upset uh, you know, the Liberal Democrat partners in government. But the 1922 committee, very concerned that the, um, there might be a vote to support the alternative vote um, in the referendum. Uh, so it put pressure on, well, Baroness Vars, who was then party chairman and had a very difficult meeting with the 22 committee. The executive of the 1922 met David Cameron and made, you know, basically said to him, do you want to be the last Conservative Prime Minister? Um, so he got the message and then played a very leading role in you know, advocating... Um, for people to vote against the introduction of the alternative vote in the referendum. So they were putting pressure on things on that, on um, uh, the leadership. Um, and Conservative MPs played a key role as well in uh, ensuring that the House of Lords Reform Bill did not um, get through the House of Commons. So it was Prime Ministry somewhat limited by um, the actions of um, the 22, particularly on, I say, on AV. So it became quite important in, as I say, being the voice of Conservative MPs during that period at a time when the party, I say, was in government, but not alone in government. Indeed. And, and one thing that I'd um, quite like to, to, to touch upon uh, at this juncture is the effectiveness of individual uh, chairman of the party mm. and the executive. How important do you think it is that there are, you know, quite forthright uh, chairs and executives yes. who were able to muster uh, support in, in, in the 1922 and it's as much um, a part uh, of them and their effectiveness yes. that makes the organisation effective rather than just the, the simple body itself. Absolutely. Let me take the executive first because that's the part of the 1922 committee I think that is so much overlooked. People know about the 1922 committee, it's weekly meetings, if there's a crisis, the Journalists are crowding the corridor outside committee room 14 in the Palace of Westminster where the 22 committee meets. But the sort of the workhorse of the 22 is actually the executive committee because some weeks the 22 has its meeting but there's no speaker, it only lasts a few minutes. Um, the executive meets each week, it'll be discussing issues, it may be meeting with ministers to raise issues of concern, it'll have uh, regular meetings uh, each year with the, um, the party leader. So that's very important in representing the views of members. Uh, and um, it's useful that um, quite often the membership of the executive is drawn from different parts of the uh, parliamentary um, party. So it can be fairly representative at times of members' views. So as I say, that's the workhorse, very important, putting views over to ministers, to the leader. Um, quite valuable at times as well in being sort of uh, the members forming if you like agony ants for backbenchers in that you know any concerns members have any problems they can go and talk to members of the executive so the executive is a much overlooked body 
in, as I say, discussing members' concerns as they affect the party, or indeed as they affect the, the House, because the, ex the executive can be, you know, a voice of Conservative MPs as MPs, because there are different issues to do with MPs' pays, pay nowadays. The Ind Independent uh, Parliamentary Standards Authority, IPSA, can be a, 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 an issue. And over time, other issues affecting uh, the House. So it can be quite valuable in that respect. So I say it's, the executive is overlooked, but it's um, a very important body. It is the workhorse of the 1922 committee. Now, the chairman, and they still use the term chairman regardless of uh, whether it's male or female, though in practice uh, they've all been uh, male, have been one or two elections where um, women MPs have stood uh, but not been elected. Um, so the 22 has never elected a, a woman uh, to chair it, nor has it ever elected um, a member of the, someone who's been in the cabinet, a senior minister, to chair it. This is unlike the Association of Conservative Peers, who in the Lords, um, that body is chaired, has been regularly chaired by ex-cabinet ministers and quite often you know, female ex-cabinet ministers. Um, so who chairs the 22 is, is very important in terms of whether they preside or whether they lead. So occasionally it's had people who've basically just presided, not done a great deal. Um, and uh, some have had fairly short tenures uh, for different reasons, um, either because election loss in one case for ill health. Um, others more recently have had quite long tenures so um, Edward Ducan had a long tenure, and then the last two chairmen, Michael Spicer and Graham Brady, are particularly long-serving, long-serving chairs. And Graham Brady is now the longest-serving chairman in the history of the 1922 committee. So it it has varied quite considerably. So Gervais Rentoul, clearly a very active chairman, founded it, uh, very keen to make a mark or ensure that when two made a mark. Um, and then um, it was really then the, as a successors weren't that particularly active. Uh, they were sort of presiding and hoping to go on and did go on to ministerial um, office. And then it was not till Alec Erskine Hill in wartime under the national government that you got a second chairman who was really proactive to the fore. And you've had a number since who have formed that role, been quite active. And as I say, uh, now long serving. So in the 1950s, John Morrison as chairman of 22, particularly influential one later, uh, Edward Ducan, as I touched upon earlier. More recently, uh, Michael Spicer and Graham Brady have been particularly uh, to the fore, very effective um, in chairing uh, the 22. Um, indeed. Um, we're coming towards the end uh, of the podcast. It's been wonderful to talk to you, uh, Philip, but I do have one final question this book is obviously on the history uh, of the 1922 its practices its membership etc but looking towards the future what do you think lies in the future for the 1922 committee particularly given the uh, precarious uh, situation that the conservative party faces itself coming up to uh, the general election this year well uh, i'm a political scientist so i don't predict i mean the most you can do is forecast um, and it, it's a conservative body, so it does evolve. I mean, it's adapted to its uh, political uh, environment. So a lot will depend, just following on from what we were just talking about, a lot will depend on who leads it. Um, obviously, size 
matters. It might be a relatively small body as it was after 1997. And, and so the challenge for the whoever is chairing it to try to bring the body together to get a sense of cohesion um, because there was a problem in 1997 because the party had been in office for so long, MPs didn't have much of a sense of what it was like to be in opposition. Um, and then so there was a challenge in actually um, coping, not least with, a, of course, much reduced parliamentary party. So a lot will depend upon who leads it, bringing members together, and obviously the executive as well, as I say, the workhorse of the 22. So leadership will be all important in sort of mobilising the members, uh, getting them together and in sort of as a cohesive uh, body, um, and also whether they're able to take it forward with um, committees, because um, the backbench committees that I mentioned earlier, the official party committees, sort of died a death after 1997, because there were so many other things for members to do, and it was a small parliamentary party. Um, since there's been an attempt to resuscitate committees as committees of the 1922 committee, now whether the size of the parliamentary party would, would facilitate um, that, but some means of keeping the members together as Conservative members will be uh, important, but it really will be who the 22 chooses as the chairman to, to lead it and um, bring members together and really give a lead um, in order to ensure the 22 continues to have um, an impact. So recent um, chairs have been very, chairman have been very good in terms of their longevity, their quality of bringing members together, but uh, nothing about a trend ensures it continuation. There's always the danger of reverting to you know, a chairman who presides and doesn't lead, but um, I'd have thought the circumstances would be especially important uh, to uh, facilitate or necessitate a chairman of the 1922 committee who is in a position to lead it and hold it together. Indeed. Well, um, thank you again for taking uh, the time to speak to me, Philip. If people want to, to buy the book, as I certainly recommend that they do, where should they go to, to purchase a copy? Well, then get to, it's published by Manchester University Press. It's uh, published in hardcover, um, even though it's very well produced by MUP, but uh, the uh, retail price is £20. So I think it's quite a good um, accessible price. Um, but one can go to the Manchester University's Prep Press website or any good um, bookseller should be able to supply copies. I'm pleased to say it's been selling very well, so I'm very happy to um, recommend that that trend continues. Indeed. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast, or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, I hope you listen to the next one.